The Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies presents the Pearl of Great Price Lecture Series, given by Dr. Hugh Nibley. Today's lecture is entitled, The Eve Theme, The Book of Enoch. about the book of Enoch now. Uh, it begins, remember we, remember we ended the last time with certain fatal ladies and there's a long list of them. Uh, we all know about Pandora's box, but remember these legends all go back to the very beginning of time. Pandora, remember, was the first woman. She was Eve. She was the wife of Epimetheus, who was Adam, and Prometheus was his brother and he advised her not, him not to marry Pandora because the many gifts she brought were fatal, the Dom Fatal. You see, it's the old rivalry of the matriarchy and patriarchy here, but it runs right through and it's very old. And the oldest story you have in Egypt is Ray and the Sun's Eye. This is the theme, you see. Uh, after the flood, Isis wanted her sons to, uh, to rule the world through the mat matriarchal line, which they did in Egypt. But to do that, she had to get the secret name. She had to get the true name from Ray. Ray had left the earth and, uh, and decided to blight it with the flood because of the wickedness of man. And uh, she wanted her son Horus to have the rule, but to do that, she had to have the right name. She had to have his name. So uh, she whittles it out of him. She makes a serpent out of clay, puts it in his path when he walks in the garden, it bites him, and he becomes poisoned, and the suffering gets worse and worse, and she can, only she can cure it. She will cure it if he tells her the secret name. So the secret name is the thing that runs right through. This is the first couple we're talking about. Uh, well, the sons, this is prehistoric, of course, in Egypt, and then we get the Greek legend of Prometheus. We mentioned Prometheus. He goes right along. It's practically a twin of, of Enoch as far as that goes, but he takes us. That's the primal drama we had in, in Moses 1. And then you know, the same story is told in the, uh, in the story of Moses and Zipporah, which uh, in the, uh, I think it's 37th chapter of Genesis, yes, uh, I mean in Exodus, is inserted there. It doesn't belong there at all. But it's a very strange story about the conflict between um, Moses and his wife Zipporah, who was an Ethiopian woman. Well, and then, of course, there's, there's Lohengrin, uh, the, the swan knight, uh, who is uh, not supposed to tell his name, of course. He will have to leave. He, he will have to leave here if he can't stay here, if his, if his secret's given away. Of course, his name is wheels out of him, and he says, my name is Lohengrin. And then uh, then got the next to Schwan, that famous joke. <laughs> the next to Schwan. But you know the story of Delilah. What is the secret of your strength? She says of Sanity. He wheedles, she wheedles the secret out of him. And Tomiris, who ends up with Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, who was completely bamboozled by Tomiris. She got his secret, his rule, his kingdom, and everything else. And there's King Solomon and Bilkis, the Queen of Sheba, who was the Shulamite, who was responsible for Solomon's fall. Remember, we're told even in the Bible that Solomon was righteous up to a particular point, and then this woman got hold of him, led him astray, and so forth. And Calypso, Dietha, Aon, and Spasi, Candace, who was Alexander the Great's undoing in, in Egypt, of course. And in all the Christian, early Christian, Gnosticism, and so forth, it's Sophia who does this. Well, this fatal name, who is she? Well, in, in our story, uh, the wives of Lamech uh, knew no compassion, and they gave him away, and he was an outcast. Notice, among the sons and daughters of men, these things were not known, uh, he and his wives rebelled against him and declared these things abroad and had not compassion. This is an interesting thing, because this story, of course, is not in the Bible, but it does come in the, early, in the earliest accounts we have of these things outside of the Bible. Um, and uh, see, the Lord cursed Lamech and all them that coveted with Satan, and Lamech is the successor to Cain, and uh, they kept the commandment, they covenanted with Satan and kept not the commandments of God, we're told in the 52nd verse, and uh, he ministered unto them, uh, God ministered not unto them. Their works were in abominations, and they spread among all men. So this gets out. Now, there is this book we've always... I wonder if you can still get it. It's only three ninety-five Because of its sensational title, it was just sort of a pot boiler that got a lot of things together. But the things that got together include some of the best, apocryphal, uh, best apocalyptic writings there are, some of the oldest and best. The editors don't know anything about it. They just picked them up and threw them together. But they're good, and they go back to early translations, all of these now. Proto-Evangelium isn't the infancy gospels, but, and Nicodemus isn't, but then 
and Paul and Seneca, those, they get them all mixed up. But first Clement, absolutely priceless. Barnabas, these are the apostolic fathers. And the letters to the Ephesians, the Trailins and Rollins, that's uh, um, Ignatius of Antioch, this, the seven letters to the Smyrnaeans and the Philippians. And uh, then there's the pastor of Hermas, which was discovered in the 1860s. That's invaluable, genuine. These are all the seven earliest Christian writings we have. They're in here. And the, the, the Hermas is priceless. But then there are the Adam and Eve books, which are interesting. They're only a small section, but they include some very interesting ones here that, well, include, for example, it tells you here how Lamech was betrayed by his two wives. Uh, he and Adam were, uh, he became Adam's successor. Of course, he was younger than Adam. Uh, he was Adam's son, according to this. And uh, they were going to have this duel and this showdown but uh, Lamech was blind, <coughs> couldn't see well, and was out in the field, and uh, Cain raging through the world, looking uh, full of vengeance, and absolutely, because he had fallen. You see, he has a terrible state of mind. He's not only suffering, but he's wrathful and determined to destroy anything that comes across. So he came to the wives of Lamech, and they betrayed him to, and had not, it says they had not compassion, and he told Cain where Lamech was out in the field. Uh, but Lamech went out, uh, Cain went out there, but Lamech got the best of it because the young man who was with him directed his arrow. He thought it was an, a wild animal come. It was in the dark, and he thought a wild animal had come, and he says, my lord, you've got to shoot in this direction. So he shot, and who should he hit but Cain? And uh, that was the end of that. But the thing is that uh, Lamech was betrayed by his wives, and this thing gets out, and this is the theme. I say, these are all themes in which the hero was betrayed by his wife or his wives. Well, quite often it's his wives. It's a very... Well, there's a very good two-volume work on this thing by Ludwig Leisner, Leisner, I should call it, uh, years ago called Das Rätsel der Sphinx. It's, they have a copy at Berkeley. Did you ever get a copy of that? It's, a, it's very, it has the best summary of these. It was written in the 1890s by a German scholar and went through it very thoroughly. Well, anyway, we get on. Now we come to the Cainite line. We mentioned that before. <coughs> We're going to have two lines then, the line of Canaan, Cain, and the line of Seth. The Cainite line in chapter 5, verse 42 following, we uh, where we're told oh, what it is, and we've put them on the, uh, notice it's Cain and Enoch, seem to be the same sort of names, and Erad, which is not Jared, and Mahuyael, we mentioned that before, and Methusael, and Lamech, the two wives, Ada, and uh, uh, Tubal-Cain and the others, and Lamech and Zillah, and these are the ones that covenanted with Sain and so forth. On the other hand, we get the separation. A separation took place between them. As I say, there are many accounts that I've just went through. I have, oh, uh, oh well, over 500 pages of Xeroxed uh, very early uh, Adam sources on this. I wouldn't dare bring them along. We'd get all mixed up with them, you see. The best way if we're going to cover any ground at all is just to tell you the stories it is anyway. So this is what happened. Uh, they separated, of course, when Cain had to leave because the land wouldn't yield for him, and he became a nomad in the land of Nod, and they wanted, and he went east, and, and since they couldn't cultivate, they went into city building and banking and things like that, and that's what they did. There's good descriptions of how they started. Uh, he invented the money and so forth, and uh, Tubal Cain and, remember, Yubal, they invent the instruments, and they have real rock music, and they... They rock and dance all the time, and uh, they're in heavy business. They go into jewelry and uh, investments of all sorts, and he Enoch establishes the first walled city and his first army and so forth, and down the line we go. And it's, it's the clash of two civilizations, of course, the pastoral, who are up in the highlands, out in the mountains. Those are the Scythians. It says they live in the holy places. Their main center is called the Mountain of the Cave of Treasures, that being where the Cave of Treasures being the Hill Cumorah, where they keep all their records. And uh, they, uh, and also, uh, they're sacred things. I say we kept, and that's where Adam, when Adam died, that's where he was buried in the, in the cave. And when they had to leave, they took him with them. Well, they separated then, and uh, the holy ones were left on the mountain and lived uh, after the manner of the righteous, uh, with their flocks, and they they gathered fruit in the manner of, it says, in the manner of paradise, they still gathered any fruit of the garden they chose to take, and they didn't toil uh, to acquire, while the people down in the plain, the people of the plain, of course, this represents a... Incidentally, uh, yesterday, I wasted, didn't waste, spent most of the day reading a, a new book 
by uh, um, by Timothy. Um, <laughs> remember, there's a it's by four authors, as a matter of fact, and uh, he um, Timothy Champion. Timothy Champion, these four authors. What it is, a collection, it's the latest of all uh, available material on prehistoric Europe. How has the picture changed, say, in the last 20 years? It brings it right up to date. And it's very interesting. Uh, for one thing, say, the uh, one thing we used for developing is the, is the absolutely basic, was the coup de poing, the Faust Kyle, the hand axe. This was the, the basic thing, because you find this at all periods. And it was supposed to become more refined, the stonework, but it said it doesn't. It shows no sign of evolution over the entire period. The big break comes, just as there's one big break comes in the geologic history between the, uh, between the tertiary and the Cretaceous. But this comes 35,000 BC, when you go over to a, a new uh, stone technique and everything is different. It seems like a new, a new race comes and inhabits the earth, new people. But their, their racial distribution, their villages, their economy, and so forth are very mysterious. Sometimes very advanced, sometimes everything suddenly disappears. Uh, around 2000 BC, all the, all the great forts, there were great fortified centers all over Europe. The forts just disappear in the place you get uh, undefended villages and general migrations of small groups go around. It's a, it's a completely uh, different picture from what they ever had before. So what's going on back here? Are these our people? Do they concern us? What about the chronology and so on? Well, things do fall into a pattern. Oh, I was going to, you know, that book by Maria Cimbutas I got the last time on old Europe. Her conclusions are from all these 30,000 uh, figurines, idols, and so forth. Remember, they have this marvelous metalwork, uh, the Varna culture in Yugoslavia uh, around uh, 4500 BC. By, well, 60 uh, begins around 5500, actually. And there are deep mines there, very rich. They have beautiful metalwork, gorgeous. It's good as you can find a thousand years before anything, anybody came to Egypt. Uh, anybody was there. So it's, it's a different picture from anything you ever saw. That's the center there. But we get this picture of the Scythians who are living righteously in the, on the highlands and the people of the plain with their licentious, easy ways. And uh, this, of course, is the, the pattern of Babylon. Remember, Mesopotamia is the flat, steamy plain, a very lush. Uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah when you get to Abraham. And so these two lines separate and the holy ones are left alone on the holy mountain. Well, now here we have things go bad, you'll notice. And uh, notice secret works, every man knew his brother and so forth. And what are they going to do about it? We get the Sethian line here and that's chapter six. And here we get it here. And uh, we can follow. Yes, here we are. It's in chapter 6, and this is the way it goes. It's Adam and Seth and Enos and uh, Canaan. First Adam, which is, means man. And remember, Abel was killed, and Seth becomes his son then. And Seth means second, or substitute, or equal. Shita'a, it means the same thing as two, double, twin. Um, because it tells us in the scripture, because he will take the place of Abel. This is to take the place of my son Abel. The line of Adam from now on does not run through Adam, Cain, and so forth. Adam, Cain. Uh, but it runs through Adam and Seth, the Sethian line. This is a parallel line. They have names that sound alike but aren't alike. And so we have uh, Adam and then Cain. And then Enoch, of all people. You wouldn't expect an Enoch to be there. But then you have Adam, Seth, which means the second Adam. And the next one, Enos, which means exactly the same thing as Adam. It means human being, man. You can say in Hebrew today, if you call a person a human being, you can either say a Ben Adam, uh, son of Adam, or Ben Enosh, son of Adam, which is the same as Enoch. See, they're all, what are we doing? Just getting human race, human race, human race all along here. So then we get uh, Enos. And then Canaan, notice the two Canaans are spelt very differently here. Notice it's in the... The prophecy of Adam spoke to all the Now, here, the eighth verse of chapter six is very important here, because the fifth chapter of Genesis begins like this. And uh, it should be correct, you notice. And this was the book of the generations of Adam. That should be capitalized because that's the title. It says at the beginning of that first fifth chapter, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And the generations of Adam are Adam, Seth, Enos, and so forth, not Adam, Cain, Abel. That's not the line. 
So when we talk about Bene Adam, this is what we're talking about. God made him in his own image, and then here again, you see in Genesis, he set them apart, both male and female, specific of his own body. Then he blessed them, and he gave them a new name. He gave them a name Adam now. This starts the new line. And then the books were open. At that time, it tells us, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And he begat a son in his own likeness, just as Adam was begot in the likeness of God, his other sons. But Seth is the double of Adam. Those in his own likeness, after his own image, and his name was called Seth. It means look just like me. It means mirror image. It means reflection. Seth means the second person. Satai, Egyptian as well as Hebrew, it means to take the place of, to replace. Uh, and after he begot Seth, then we go down the line. The 13th verse, Seth begat Enos all his days and taught Enos, wherefore Enos prophesied also and Seth. And the children of men are numerous and Satan starts his big counterattack now. Now this is the story they tell between the the Sethians and the Cainites. They go on, the descendants of Seth and descendants of Cain, and the uh, their cultures, and have different traditions, but the Cainites win hands down. There's no contest here at all, but it happened over many years, however, and they, they tell us how it happened, how the uh, the plains had great attraction for the uh, the more simple living people of the of the high places. They uh, naturally were enticed. The, uh, uh, Satan took charge down below. He took directions. He made a covenant. They, they talk a lot about the covenant and so forth, how he directed them and, uh, and gave them the jewelry and the beautiful clothes and loud instruments. He specialized in brass bands. And this would attract the attention of the young people up on the, on the heights and they'd come and look down with some envy at all the fun that was going down there in the plane, all the lights and the dancing and the carousing and so forth. And uh, they were told, then we come down the list here, the uh, after Canaan and uh, Mahalaleel, and then comes Jared. His name, Jared, means going down because that was the day when they went down from the mountain. They left it. Jared told his sons, if, you're, if you ever go down there, uh, you'll never get back. But first, they didn't know the way down, so Satan had to teach him. Satan actually came with a delegation of uh, very important-looking people, and he came up and invited Jared, come down, Brother Jared, and visit us in the city down below, and you'll see what a nice society we have, and you'll love to stay with us. You'll see what it's like. It's curious. Well, so he went down with them, and uh, they dressed up like angels, and they fooled him. He actually, uh, he actually was fooled until uh, uh, he got back home, and... Uh, the angel came and told him, look, this is terrible. You've been, you've been led astray, and don't let your people do this. Uh, but uh, Satan showed them a way down. There was a gully that, where a stream went down, and you could get down that way. And they started drifting down and joining in the fun. And when they got down there, oh, incidentally, when Jared went there, uh, he was introduced into all the delights of the place. Immediately, they started giving him a real show. Uh, it was a session. And uh, it was a real orgy, described it, obscene goings-on and so forth. Well, he was horrified, but uh, because they convinced him, you see, the men that, the, the men that came to get him were so oft times and to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness uh, play us ill, leave us, uh, win us with honest, uh, oh, what is it? But oft times to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness play us ill, win us with honest uh, something to betray us in deep, deepest consequences. Oh, honest trifles, that's it. Win us with honest trifles to betray us in deepest consequences. They won Jared over, but he saw it was going. Well, his kids started going down, and they started joining the fun, and they couldn't get their way back, and they didn't want to come back either. And they were warned, if you do. And pretty soon there was only a small community left up on the hill, the righteous ones, the holy ones. And you'll notice, as I say, this is all in this these very old traditions. These were discovered in the 19th century uh, and in several different, well, there's about a hundred different sources, actually. But they go back to Mandaean sources and they go back to the jo Johannite Christians and they go uh, uh, Central Asia, the same place where they found the pearl and so forth. But then down in Basra, at the mouth of the, uh, the two rivers in Mesopotamia, that's where they're Mandaeans. About 2,000 of them still survive and live in these well, these uh, reed, practically palaces, huge things you may have seen in the last one, geographic. Yeah. 
But they still preserve those on lead plates, these stories, because they couldn't stay under water, of course, and gold was rather expensive. But uh, Elizabeth Drower was able to collect some uh, back in the 1950s and 60s and get some of these records. We have more now. But anyway, they were to come back, and uh, uh, it just left a small community. Well, what, what were they to do to keep up, you see? Uh, they're removed far off. Actually, you see, it's the, the Canaanites who migrate then. We find it in the time of Jared and so forth. Notice, this, this matches the Book of Ether, very interesting, and we couldn't go through these cultural details. These little things are so close to the Book of Ether and the Book of Mormon, which happened at the Tower, as you know. Well, the... Uh, so the Holy Ones are left. And so when we come into our book of Enoch, remember, when they ask Enoch on the high places who he is, they say a wild man is a strange thing in the land, a wild man has come among us. They say, who are you? And he says, I come from the land of my fathers, which is a land of holiness to this day. Now the tradition is that those who remained on the high places uh, kept themselves holy, and it was still called the land of holiness when Enoch went forth on his mission. All this is in these sources. I mean, you won't find it in the Bible or any Jewish sources either, for that matter. This is very old stuff. This is Mandaean. This is in, a, in the old Chaldean dialect that the Jews can't read at all. It wasn't read until the middle of the 19th century to begin to decide what it was. The uh, de Sacy, the great Orientalist de Sacy, in the first part of the 19th century, says it was just a, a lot of nonsense. So we get to, we get to this. And... Uh, so Enoch is sent on a mission to go out and see, remember here's this crash program at the end of chapter 5. When the people went bad, notice on the one hand, abominations began to spread among all the people. On the other, verse 58, the gospel began to be preached from the beginning, declared, holy angels are sent, sent forth from the presence of God. There's direct messengers, there's by his own voice, by the gift of the Holy Ghost. So it's a crash program by revelation and other ways. And... The gospel is handed down as in Mormon tells us, in the seventh chapter of Mormon, I think, of Moroni, rather, of how that's done. Yeah, I think that's Moroni. The way this is passed down, remember, you don't, we don't get to see angels or have visitations. We're not supposed to. Yes, here it is. Because he hath done this, my beloved brethren, have miracles ceased, and I, I say unto you, neither have angels ceased to minister unto the children of men. So the Lord sends angels down to see, and he says, For behold, they are subject to him. The angel, an angel means a messenger. An angel is someone with a messenger. This is Moroni 7 and 29 following uh, verse 30. For behold, they are subject to him to minister according to the word of his command. All they do is represent him, the angel. You don't have to see God face to face. An angel will do. Showing themselves not unto everybody, but only unto them of strong faith and firm mind in every form of godliness. You receive no witness till after a trial of your faith, and also firm mind, not for hysterical people that are liable to see visions and, and uh, take drugs and all sorts of things. It's not uh, people of that type that you can trust. I mean, uh, over-imaginative and excitable. No, people of firm mind and strong faith, the only ones an angel can come to. Otherwise, it'll set you off your rock. Remember, uh, Brigham Young said, pray that you will never see an angel, because almost everyone who ever has seen one is apostatized, more than they could take. That's an interesting psychological. Well, then we go on here. For the office of their ministry is, now these are the men of firm mind and godliness, is to call men to repentance and to fulfill and do the work of the covenants of the Father. They call men to repentance, you see, and carry out, enter, and fulfill the covenants unto the children of men, to prepare the way among the children of men, declaring the word of Christ unto chosen vessels of the Lord. They who have seen the angels declare the vessel, uh, the under-chosen vessels. This is another step. The chosen vessels are the priesthood, authorities, general and otherwise, who preach these things. They're the chosen vessels, that they may bear testimony of him. And by so doing, next verse, God prepareth the way that the residue of men, all the rest of them now receive it, that they all receive it in the line. They have faith in Christ that the Holy Ghost may have place in their hearts. They receive the same witness that the person is, receives who's visited by an angel. It isn't because these people told them that they believe it's true. They don't get their testimony from these people. They're introduced to it that they may have a place in their hearts according to the power thereof. After this manner, the Father bringeth to pass the Father the covenants which he hath made unto the children of men. So between the Father and the man, it's, it's through this... Uh, it's not necessarily a hierarchy. Anyone who has the Spirit, remember when they asked Joseph Smith, are you a prophet of God? Yes, he says yes, and so is everyone else 
with any other person who can bear a testimony to Jesus Christ, because it can only done, be done by the spirit of prophecy. So they send out this crash program to try to save the world, which is in a very bad way. Thus all things were confirmed unto Adam by a holy ordinance accompanied by the covenants that go down. And of course, the, the great missionary who's going to, to preach it is going to be Enoch. So he sent out Enoch's mission. Now, we should mention the Enoch sources here because, because uh, this is one of the most remarkable, I say the strongest evidence we have for, the, for Joseph Smith, I think, is probably the book of Enoch because nothing was known about it in his day. It was held in utter contempt. It had been found, but we'll mention the Enoch's then quickly, what the sources are. I tell you, we can get the... Uh, I had this series of articles running through from uh, October 75 to June 77, to August 77, in the Improvement Era, or was it called the Ensign by that? I mean, it's the Ensign. That's a lot of them, and you can find all this Enoch stuff in there. A lot of it's been brought together, not all of it. And you can get it at farms down here. Uh, the only thing is it'll set you back 350. I figure that's about two cents a page, though, which isn't bad for Xeroxing. And they've gone to the trouble to, to pull all the articles out uh, from the pages of the Ensign, put them all together, so it's quite a convenience if you want to part with that much dough. But it's on reserve, of course. We'll put it on reserve so you don't have to worry. But you'll find it there, and it's, it's quite convenient. And we start out talking about, among other things, the fact that the Book of Enoch was by far, now this is very good, was considered by far the most important of all non-biblical writings uh, by the Jews and the Christians. It's quoted 128 times in the New Testament. Nobody knew that until we had the document and could see what they were quoting. They didn't realize that Enoch was everything. Why had they gotten rid of it? We talked about that before. Same reason they got rid of all the other stuff. Same reason they got rid of the, uh, they got rid of the, the pre-existence, the uh, council in heaven, the plurality of worlds. All these things, which are greatly emphasized in, in Enoch, were uh, were banned in the fourth century. As R. H. Charles has done more work with this than anyone else, you have three books of his, and you will find the Enoch book in R. H. Charles. As far as that goes, you know it's that big. R.H. Charles on reserve, and you'll find it there. Found both the second Enoch and the first Enoch there. And so it was, uh, he says, the main fathers of the church declared war on it, including such great names as Hillary and so forth, and it was so completely forgotten that no one even knew it existed until Joseph Justice Scaliger at the end of the 16th century suspected. He got, he discovered a passage from Sincellus, a, a, a Byzantine writer, which he said looks as if it came from a book of Enoch. And because there had always this tradition about the Enoch, both the Jews and the Christians lost it entirely. That's funny. Yet there were thousands of copies around if they only knew it. So then they began the discovery, and the discovery begins with first Enoch. And that is the Ethiopian Enoch in 1773. Go half fast now. Sir James Bruce, who discovered the sources of the Blue and the White Nile, in the process of discovering the sources of the Blue and the White Nile, picked up a lot of manuscripts in Abyssinia, especially three beautiful manuscripts which he brought back, was very proud, and they were books of Enoch in Abyssinian, in Ethiopian. They'd been preserved there. Uh, they go back no earlier than the 15th, the 16th and 17th century. They're not very old, you see. Uh, Ethiopian in the 16th and 17th centuries. And he brought them back to Europe uh, to, uh, there had been, oh, incidentally, scholars like Piersech and uh, in, the, uh, in the Renaissance. Renaissance scholars were very much interested in Enoch too and claimed to have found him. And uh, there were a beautiful, Piersech bought a beautiful manuscript in Italy, which they say had come from Ethiopia. And, uh, but the great scholar, he wasn't a great scholar, but he thought he wasn't, everybody believed him. Uh, Job Ludolf of Berlin, uh, came to uh, Paris in 1683 to examine the manuscript. He said, oh, it's trash, it's a vile spot. It's terrible, never look at this. And so for over 90 years, nobody paid any attention to Enoch. They thought, well, they had a text of Enoch there, a good one, but they didn't. Well, actually, this is late, and it's long, and it contains everything. It's badly copied and so forth. It's not the best possible source. But it was the first known, and because it's long, all the chapters are named after it. Whenever you look up an Enoch source, whether it's first, second, third, fourth, fifth Enoch, no matter what Enoch it is, it always quotes the same chapters and verses, namely those which were established in, in the first Enoch, which is the one that's edited by R.H. Charles. 
So we get this first Ethiopian eunuch comes along, and no one would believe it, and no one would believe, in fact, no one would believe that James Bruce had discovered the sources of the Nile, uh, and it made him mad. So he retired to his estate in Scotland and didn't come out again. He took uh, one manuscript with him, gave one to Oxford, where it rotted, and, uh, and another to Paris, Paris Library. So we had three Enoch texts. Well, uh, in 1821, uh, Richard Lawrence, who was the Bishop of Cashel in Ireland, he was a, he was a great man. He, if they followed his advice, he did everything he could to, to uh, pacify, to put an end to the endless feuds between the, the Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. But uh, he got out the first translation of it in 1821. Well. Uh, if you'll see a copy of that, it's very different from what came out later in 1838 and 1840. Not only unsatisfactory, but, but it is undoubtedly, it's, it's the same book and so forth. But uh, this is important because this is the only text that would have been available to Joseph Smith. In 1821, it was uh, Richard Lawrence. And he, he, they wouldn't even let him take a copy out. They wouldn't even take, let him take a light. He had to practically ruin his eyesight by reading it in the dark, in the damp, dank uh, cellar at, at Oxford, in, in the Bodleian, uh, to read it that way, and make a copy of it. But this translation is very interesting, because, they say, aha, that's where Joseph Smith got it from. That's an interesting thing. If you hold them to that, somebody, I think it was at Northwestern University, uh, wrote a uh, dissertation to show that Joseph Smith must have got his Book of Enoch from this, because there's so many parallels. Well, there are a lot of parallels. Very close, very striking ones. This is the point. But uh, they're nothing like the parallels that come out in the later ones, in the later discoveries, which shows he's really on target. Of course they are. If this came from original source, all these are going to sound very much alike. Second Enoch, that's a, that's a funny one. That was uh, um, way back as early as, uh, well, it wasn't even published, discovered, recognized as the Book of Enoch until 1892. They didn't realize that it was different from the other Enoch. They thought it was just the same one. But it's the old Slavonic one, the old Slavonic one. And uh, in, uh, it was 1896 that Morfell first made a translation of it. And uh, that's when it first came out. It was uh, Charles himself first suspected in 1892 it might be the Book of Enoch. And uh, it was, the manuscript was discovered uh, in 1857, it was discovered among manuscripts and never connected with Enoch in, in Moscow, uh, in Petersburg. And, uh, and uh, so this is an old Slavonic. Well, what's old Slavonic got to do with this? Is actually the oldest and best Enoch until we discovered the, until we discovered the Hebrew ones. Uh, what's old Slavonic got to do with it? Well, this is one of the Pelaya texts. The Pelaya text, that means the old text, the old text things. This is 9th, 10th century. This, you see, 15th, 16th century. This is 9th century. So what happened in the 9th and 10th, 11th century, especially the 10th century, most of the pilgrimage to Jerusalem came from Slavic lands. By Old Slavonic, we mean Southern Yugoslavian, Macedonian, is that's what it is. It reads very much like Russian. We have texts of it here. I have a good, not a good Xerox, a Xerox of it in various manuscripts published by Bayon. But, uh, they would take their pilgrimages, and monks, pious monks, would go to, uh, from the uh, monasteries uh, in Slavic-speaking lands, would go to the Holy Land and spend some time there, and there in the monasteries they would make copies of these texts. They, they didn't translate them into, uh, uh, into Slavonic down there. They brought the copies back and they were, excuse me, they did, they did translate them there. They did not bring the copies back, the ancient copies back. They stayed there sometimes for years and translated them and brought these translations home. But the, the documents they had access to were very old. They were older than any of the others. And that's why the, the Old Slavonic is very reliable. And that's what, uh, when uh, Matthew Black said, oh, yes, but the trouble with Joseph Smith, of course, he, he has these, but uh, he has too much of the Old Slavonic there. And just a couple of weeks after that came some articles out showing the Old Slavonic was by far the oldest and best text. But that was before something else happened. So this is the Old Slavonic. And it came out, and this we have, this is in that R.H. Charles, that uh, Old Testament pseudepigrapha, uh, apocryphal pseudepigrapha, and it's translated there by Moorfield, who made the 
first and only translation in 1896. Incidentally, the only place this was recognized as anything but trash was in the, uh, oh, when this one came out, when Richard Lawrence's came out. As I say, this was, uh, stirred no attention at all. Nobody paid any attention to it. The 1838 edition, which was eight years after our book of Enoch, you see, that was the only one that got any attention. And the 1840 edition, it was quite different. It had much, much more to it and read different. But in 1840, uh, it was finally uh, read by lots of people uh, in this country. Michael Stewart, who was the head of the Andover Seminary, the big shot, he says, yes, it's, it's fascinating. It's a, it's a great work, but it's trash. We, all Christians should be warned away from it. The ministry wouldn't pay any attention. So, so nobody paid any attention to it at all. But except one person, and that was they got a very good review, and that was in the Millennial Star by Parley P. Pratt in 1840. Uh, he was the first one to recognize the Book of Enoch. Uh, as, a, as a valuable work, and especially as far as he's concerned, he didn't recognize it as shedding any light on Joseph Smith's Enoch at all. He recognized it as confirming the Book of Mormon. There were so many things in parallel to the Book of Mormon. But it's the, uh, there it was recognized, and uh, I say in the same year, Michael Stewart wrote his review in 1840, uh, very much impressed, but very much against, and uh, Parley P. Pratt wrote his review in the Millennium Star in England in 1840, uh, very much impressed and very much for it. So we have second Enoch, we'll get to third Enoch. Now, third Enoch is the Greek Enoch. Now, they knew that, uh, as I say, way back in the 17th century, Scaliger found a Byzantine copy of it and so forth. But the wasn't until wasn't until 1886 and 7 and 87 uh, at uh, the famous Giza fragment was discovered. I have a copy of that. Uh, the French excavating at Giza, Great Pyramid, uh, they discovered a text, a Greek text, which they thought went back to the 8th century. Now it's known, it goes back to the 6th century. So now we're getting older and older. And this contains things just as they are there, but also a lot more. It's more specific, more convincing. It doesn't have so much <coughs> nonsense in it. These texts, as they get older and older, get better and better. And the Greek text is very good, the Giza one. Then, in 1930, Chester Bailey. Chester Bailey is an important person because he was an Irishman who made all his money in Bingham Copper over here. And he used it for a great museum. He, the greatest collection of papyri, of uh, documents, or really, uh, really parchments in the world, uh, a special museum in Dublin. He built the museum in Dublin with his, with his money from Utah Copper, uh, where he has these. And among these is a very valuable uh, text of Enoch, which went back to the fourth century. And then in the next year, in 1931, uh, Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was visiting the University of Michigan, where they have a big Coptic collection, the, the only big one in the United States at that time, he discovered in 1931 the other half of it. So they put them together. They have a pretty good book of the book of Enoch here going back to the fourth century. Uh, Kenyon, the baby, the Chester baby papyrus. So now you have a very good copy of it reproduced um, with Perfect photographic verity. Same size, color, everything. You might just as well have the documents in front of you. And we have the whole, we have the big Chester Betty collection here, so it's a good thing to have. So now we're back to the fourth century. And, uh, but, then the important one. This isn't numbered. See, uh, a Hebrew text, a long Hebrew one, uh, got out in, oh, by Odeberg in 1927. Uh, R.H. Charles permitted Odeberg to call this third Enoch, which is a Hebrew Enoch. But way back in the 50s, in 1859, uh, well, 53, uh, Jelinek, Adolf Jelinek, who was a, a Belgian Jewish scholar, he suspected that the original Enoch was a Hebrew, was a Jewish Enoch. They could find the original. Probably would be much older when they found it. And he looked and looked for it. He edited that great work, the Beit HaMidrash, collecting all these old stories. And he uh, kept searching. And then in 19, 1859, he found a big chunk of it. He found what had been going under the name of the, the Hekalot book, the book of the Hekalot. Hekalot means the chambers or rooms of the temple, which represent the various degrees of progress that one made in going through the ordinances. And those are the Hekalot. Uh, Hekal, Hekal means the temple. It's a temple or shrine. Hekalot's the plural of it. So we have the Hebrew unit, and he began to discover it. And then by 1879, uh, he discovered the whole thing. And then 1927, uh, incidentally, uh, the date of these, uh, these Hebrew ones, oh, they're from the 18th century on down, 
But then in the, the big discovery uh, came later. Let me see what other uh, Hebrew versions do we have. We have the, well, I think 1927 is the big one. It's funny, most of the scholars who study all these things never heard of the great manuscript that Odeberg got out in, Hugo Odeberg got out in uh, 1927. That's a massive 13, I guess a marvelous work. And it's all in Hebrew. But then comes the big one. Uh, in 1952, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the caves, you find, well, in the first cave there was an Enoch, there was a 1Q Enoch, which came out in an early time, and then the big one, the 4Q Enoch, and 4Q Enoch Aster. Uh, that that uh, means the first cave, the Enoch text from the first cave, this is the Enoch text from the fourth cave, and this is the Enoch astronomical text from the fourth cave. They were all handed over to Father Millick, J.T. Millick, uh, who lives in Jerusalem, by the Rockefeller Foundation. When these were found, you see, they were to be studied. They were divided up among various schools and committees and so forth. And he, he got this one. He got the Enoch book, and he kept it for 27 years without letting, letting anybody look at it. Uh, it finally came out <coughs> in 1976. Now, for example, in this, in this series, uh, they didn't have it when I was getting it out. It was absolutely unavailable, and uh, Millick, well, in 70, was it 76? <coughs> yes, uh, Father uh, Joseph uh, Fitzmaier. Father Joseph Fitzmaier was here and, and gave a course during the summer school in, in Aramaic. Well, this writing is in Aramaic. And of course, his fellow Jesuit, Father Millick, you'd see, would let, gladly let him see it. Oh, no, he said. Anytime he asked for it, he said he'd hide it under his coat. He wouldn't let anybody see it. it was, for 27 years, it was held, kept out of circulation. And then after I'd finished this series, then the last day, they finally published it. And the week it came out, well, 77, the week it came out, it was published by Oxford. We have it here. The English is done by <coughs> Matthew Black. And uh, Father Millick and Matthew Black worked together on it. And the week he came here, Matthew Black uh, came here. He was here the week that it came out. And he sent me a letter before he came. He says, is there anything you'd like me to discuss about Enoch when you get here? And uh, I said, yes, the story of, uh, of uh, the, the story of the uh, Mahujan Mahijit. In the story of, uh, oh, and then we got to talk about this thing, what it is anyway. This <laughs> dates from the third century BC. Now we're really back there. You see, we're not, we're not in the fourth century AD anymore. We're in the third century BC. We go way back, and it's in Aramaic, and it's the oldest and the best. It has all sorts of stories. Well, now this is really something. And uh, the one that interested me here was this one about Mahuja and Mahija. Because how come Joseph Smith knew the story about Mahuja and Mahija? Because that's a story you find, and none of the others, none of them mention it. But here it is, told here, and here it is told by, by Joseph Smith. Well, let's just mention it briefly here. The last of this series, it's, in, uh, it's uh, from uh, August 77. We mention this here. Um, yeah. Father Millick, the Enoch text from Cave 4, all scholars working on it have eagerly waited during the last quarter century to see what new information would be added, what theories might be toppled, what hypotheses and so forth. Well, now here's what they finally show. But this didn't come out till the last of this series because they, they cut the series short in righteousness. It was going, I was going to, it was really going to get good, but they, uh, certain <laughs> people didn't, didn't like it. They got, no, they got a new person in there and so forth that knew not Israel. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, and here is the story. Uh, the, well, where we mention it here. What's always impressed me, the oddest detail of the Joseph Smith account of Enoch was the appearance out of the blue of a name only non-biblical individual named in the whole book of, uh, in the whole book, and that's Mahijah, Moses 6.40. Mahijah was the one who asked Enoch the searching question and answer and so forth. Well, this is what happens. We're near to it anyway. This is an example. I get a tap. There came a man to him whose name, see, everybody's scared to death. Let's go about before it. And they said, a strange thing, this is a marvelous picture we get of Enoch. He's a mysterious character. You see, in all the Enoch literature, this is the way he comes, comes across. Um, 
There came a saying abroad in the land, A seer hath the Lord raised up. And it came to pass, Enoch went forth, standing upon the hills and high places. Remember, the, the righteous are always associated there. They have to come up to see him. And they do. They said, look, and crying with a loud voice, testifying against their works, and all the men were offended because of him. And they came forth to hear him upon the high places, saying to the tent keeper, You stand down here, and we'll go up and take care and listen to him. Tarry ye here and keep the tents while we go yonder to behold the seer. For he prophesieth, there is a strange thing in the land, a wild man hath come among us. Now here's the story that we get from here, and I say it's never mentioned in any of these. For fear came upon them that heard him, and there was a, yeah, fear came upon all them that heard him, and there was a man. Unto, and there came a man unto him whose name was Mahijah, and he said unto him, Tell us plainly who thou art, and from whence thou comest. And he said unto them, I came from the land of Canaan, the land of my fathers, a land of righteousness unto this day. See, they retained their righteous condition unto this day. And my father taught me in all the ways of God. And so it came to pass as I journeyed from the land of Canaan by the sea east, I beheld a vision, he goes on, and then he says, uh, he talks about the book, Why do you counsel yourselves? Death has come upon our fathers. Nevertheless, we know and cannot deny the first we know because of this book of Adam. We cannot deny the first even Adam. For a book of remembrance we have written among us according to the pattern given by the finger of God. Then he reads to them for the book, from the book and they're ashamed and they uh, couldn't raise their faces uh, and they couldn't face him when he read them from the book and uh, couldn't stand in his presence. Well, uh, I just had time uh, for this last concluding article, which they allow only two pages for, uh, to match these up. Moses 6, 39. When they heard him, all fear came upon them that heard him. Four Q giants. So this is the one. Four Q giants, four Q Enoch. It says, Thereupon all the giants and the Nephilim took fright when they heard about Enoch. But Joseph Smith. And there came a man unto him whose name was Mahijah, said to him, Tell us plainly without art, and whence thou comest. And fourth Enoch here, fourth Q Enoch. And they summoned Mahijah, Mahujah Mahijah. It's written both ways, incidentally. Uh, and he came unto them, and the giants asked him, and they sent him to Enoch, saying, Go then, under pain of death, and you must listen to his voice and tell him, as he explains to you and interprets the dreams. Tell him exactly who you are. And they went, and he comes to him, and he, and he said unto them, Tell us plainly who thou comest. See, they're scared. They don't know who Enoch is. So they force Mahujah, Mahijah here. Uh, it's in our book, Mahijah too. Mahijah to go and ask who they really are, and he's scared he doesn't want to do that. The, the principal giants, or, or Oya, he's the head of them, uh, Oya uh, said to Mahija, um, why, uh, and I do not tremble, who showed you all these things, why do you tell us this? And Mahija said, Barakel, my father, was with me. That Barakel is interesting too, because Barakel is supposed to have been the father of, uh, of Enoch, that was the father he went by, and that's the name Enoch goes by in the Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph Smith is called Enoch or Barak El. And uh, Professor, a Hebrew man up at, up at the U of U said, well, Joseph Smith under, didn't understand the word Barak, meaning to bless and so forth, but Barak El means the lightning of God, and that was one of the names that Enoch bore. Uh, the Doctrine and Covenants is, is right on target in that, and this confirms it here, that he's called Barak El here. Well, anyway... And he said to them, I came out of the land of my fathers, a land of righteousness unto this day. In the fourth Enoch here, Oya comes and following him, uh, Mahuja comes and reports to the, uh, Mahuya, he uses both, Mahuya comes and reports to the people that sent him and said, my accusers, they dwell in the heavens, they live in holy places, and they are more powerful than we. So again, he says, I come from a land of righteousness to this day. And his answer is, they dwell in holy places and nothing we can, much we can do about them. And then Enoch tells the story, and as I journeyed by the sea east, I beheld a vision, and lo, the heavens I saw. And as I journeyed, I went up on the mountain, beheld the heavens open. The giant says, and Mahuja rose up in the air like a whirlwind, and he flew, and he crossed the solitude, the great desert, and he caught sight of Enoch, and he called him and said to him, an oracle, blank, 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 it breaks off. And Enoch said, we cannot deny a book of remembrance we have written among us according to the pattern given by the finger of God in our own language. And the 4Q Enoch says, Unto you, Mahija, the two tablets. Blank, blank, blank. The set, second has never been read up until now. It is the sacred book of blank, blank, blank. The copy of the second tablet of the epistle written by Enoch, the distinguished scribe with his own hands. Remember, with God, with, with, by the finger of God. It says, uh, according to the pattern given by the finger of God. See, the finger of God didn't write it. Enoch said he wrote it according to the pattern given by the finger of God in our own language. And here it says, uh, written by Enoch, the distinguished scribe, in his own hand. And the Holy One, 
to Shemhazah and all his companions. The record is sent from the Holy One, that's from God, to Shemhazah. And then it says, well, it goes on, and, uh, and the, uh, oh dear, the, as Enoch spake forth the words of God, the people trembled and could not stand in his presence. This one says, Aoya said to Haya, his brother, the two leading giants, were struck with fear, and they prostrated themselves and began to weep before Enoch with fear. And uh, then we get to, they go on, and Oya, the enemy of Enoch, and he, Enoch, said, let the people of God and their enemies repent. Yes, let the people of God and their enemies, I should say repent here, because here it is, he does, oh, I see these things on opposite pages. The top of the page, just a second. Well, here's some that's side by side because they broke it in the middle here. Being before him and so forth. Oh yes, here it says, Enoch says, Let it, loosen yourselves from your bonds of sins. Repent the sin which ties you up and begin to pray. And then when the enemy comes to battle against him, remember, the, uh, the giants come in all they come to battle against Enoch. They came to battle against them. And the Joseph Smith version says, And Enoch led the people of God and their enemies, came to battle against them, and he spake the word of the Lord, and the earth trembled. And this one says, And as he, Enoch, led the people of God and their enemies, the power I attacked all flesh, and I have made war upon them. This is the leader of the host saying, But they live in holy abodes, and they are more powerful than I. And then the next verse is interesting, And the roar of lions was heard out of the wilderness, and all nations feared greatly. Fourth Enoch says, And the roaring of wild beasts came, and the multitude of wild animals began to cry out. And Oya spoke, My dream has overwhelmed me, and sleep has left my eyes. You see, they, they even have the animals howling out of the wilderness here. The roar of lions was heard out of the wilderness. Sounds so incongruous, so odd there, you know. And this says, Thereupon the roaring of wild beasts came, and the multitude of wild animals began to cry out. Incidentally, this isn't my translation I've been following. I've just been using... Uh, I have just been using... Uh, Millix. And then, as I say, he was coming, Matthew Black was coming, he just got this work out, you see. Uh, I said, well, how, how about this? How that Joseph Smith has this story, nobody else has it, where did he get it from? He wouldn't talk about it, absolutely nothing. And finally, well, when he met, when he came from the airport, he had it in his pocket, he says, here's your letter here. And I said, all right, how about Mahoya Hira? Nothing. I had one four-hour conversation with him, letter, never let out a peep about it. That's when we went to a concert together. But uh, he did let this out. He says, walking along, he says, well, someday we'll find out the source that Joseph Smith used. Someday we'll find it. We'll find it. Don't worry. We'll, <laughs> well, just what are the chances Joseph Smith living in Kirtland, Ohio in 1830, <laughs> getting hold of any of these sources or anything else? Of course, none of this was there. But when you get things like this, they're awfully hard to explain, you see. It's, it's uh, really quite remarkable. I'm afraid the time is up now. <laughs> We've wasted a lot of it just on the documents.